0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, the podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is James Vanderbilt, an award-winning writer, producer, and director whose credits include 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man, White House Down, and one of my favorite movies of all time, David Fincher's Zodiac. In our conversation, we cover a wide range of topics, among them the research that went into writing and producing Zodiac, his relationship with pitching films to studios, and even learning to become a first-time director for 2015's Truth. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. James, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm really, really excited. Uh, there's so many projects we're going to be talking about. And uh, again, thank you for having
1: me. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me.
0: I wanted to start from the beginning. Uh, right now, I'm very lucky to to be at USC, and I wanted to ask you about your experience.
1: I grew up on the East Coast, and I went to a boarding school there. And a lot of the kids I went to school with ended up going to like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, those types of places. And I thought I, too, would be able to go to those types of places. So I I applied to those types of places. And then USC, because I always knew I wanted to be in the business. And I don't want to say it was my safety, because it wasn't that kind of a situation. But I was pretty sure I was going to go to Harvard or Yale. And Harvard and Yale both had different ideas about the matter. I went to my father and I said, look, you know, I really, I'd like to take a year off and, you know, reapply. And he looked me in the eye and he actually laughed and he went, you're going to college. And so I came out to Los Angeles uh, and I've been here ever since.
0: And you found out about the writing divisions once you got there, right?
1: I did, yeah. I didn't know there was... I had applied to both the... I got into the general education. I didn't get into the production program. So I wasn't in the film school when I got there. So I was a, basically just a, a GE major, and I met a guy right away named Chris Fedak, who was in the writing program, uh, and we became really, really good friends. And so the next year, I didn't. I didn't apply to other colleges. I just applied to the writing program. And, and he wrote a recommendation for me and I got in. And the writing program at, at SC back then for undergraduate, I don't know how much bigger or if it's any bigger, was only about 22 kids. So it was a little bit the redheaded stepchild of the, of the film division, but it was phenomenal. And Chris, by the way, you know, I'm eternally grateful to, who's also still one of my great friends, who's an amazing writer. He created Chuck. He's still killing it today as a showrunner. So it's, uh, we started our careers together, which was awesome.
0: Well, it's amazing because I was I was doing a lot of research on this. Even now, hearing all the questions that students have, you know, in regards to getting into the business, and it sounds like the advice that you were getting from professors, it wasn't as much about how do I get in the business, but how do I stay in the
1: business? Yeah, no, that was uh, John Fury, who who uh, the unfortunately late John Fury, he passed away. He was head of the writers program at that time. And that was sort of his big line. Everybody was like, how do I get an agent? How do I get an agent? How do I get an agent? I cannot imagine that's changed much. Maybe it's more how do I get a manager now? But because agents won't talk to unsigned writers. And his whole thing was, if you do the work and you come up with the samples and the stuff's really good, eventually you will get an opportunity to put your stuff in front of somebody who can make a difference. The trick is, what's the next script after that? Like, how do you stay at the party? And so he always sort of tried to drill that into us, you know.
0: Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you, what were some of the experiences in film school that taught you the most about screenwriting? Looking back now, what were some of the concepts you were first grasping? And that helped you push? I'm going to talk in a moment about your first script sale, but, but sure. I wonder how did your experience change from when you got in and you found out about the writing of school to school you know, two days before you graduated?
1: There wasn't actually just one or two experiences. I think it was actually being surrounded by other people who wanted to do it and reading their work and having them read my work and giving notes and stuff like that and being given this sort of space where it was okay to fail. You know, like, cause, cause I, I, and somebody said this to me many years ago and I truly do believe it is you have to write a bunch of bad scripts to get to a good script. Like there's just no, you know, nobody, nobody writes a great script their very first script. It's like, it's like exercise. It's like anything. You have to build the muscles. You have to make mistakes. You have to. And so being able to do that in an environment surrounded by really talented people who can kind of, you can help and they help you. I think was the, the biggest thing and having those four years to write incredibly bad scripts and not have anyone important see them. And not have, oh Jesus, he wrote that, you know, was super helpful. And the teachers were wonderful too. Like the faculty was great, but I think I learned the most from fellow students. We were all trying to do the same thing. We were all kind of trying to crack that code and it would get you really excited when you read, you know, a friend's work and we would read, you know, each other's stuff out loud in class and, you know, play different roles. And the other great thing that, that, um, they did back then, I don't know if they still do it, I hope they do, is in the writing program was a BFA, so they actually made you take a bunch of different disciplines. So you had to take a psychology class, you'd take an acting class, you had to take a directing class, you had to take a bunch of production classes too. So the idea was as a writer you had to walk in the shoes of other people who were going to be on sets, you had to walk in the shoes of actors who were going to read your lines, you had to walk in the shoes of a director who would have to figure out how to interpret that stuff. The idea being it all fed the same thing, and I thought that was a really smart way to kind of skin that cat.
0: So you graduate from SC in 99, and I don't feel bad enough about myself until I read that you sell your first script two days before graduation. And I'm like, those were different times. Did not make me popular. Yes,
1: no, it was definitely sort of a specky script boom days. But you also have to remember, I went to another guy in my class named Josh Schwartz, who sold his first script the previous year for three quarters of a million dollars and left school and basically was like, you know what? I think I'm good. Uh, And then created a little show called The O.C. And and, there you uh, go. So so I was not the most... <laughs> Just drop you know. out and create the Yeah, OC so for me, it. I was like the afterthought. I'm like, I should also sell a script before we graduate. I should really get out of here too.
0: But it's interesting to hear that because I, I I was wondering, how does early recognition impact your relationship with your own creativity? Hmm. Does it boost it? Does it modify it? Because I can imagine you feel pretty good about yourself the morning after, but then it's Ooh, like, sure. okay, as we said a moment ago, yeah. how do I stay then in? Then you got
1: to go to work. Yeah, yeah, No. I mean, it's interesting. I don't know. It's a really good question. I don't know how it impacted the creativity just in terms of, I'm sure it did. I just, since I don't, you know, it's sliding doors, I don't know what the other branching version of that was. I'd wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. So it wasn't something that, I came to later on, you know, so it wasn't like I decided at at 17, I wanted to be a writer. And then at 22, I sold a script. So the idea of doing it had always been around whether it, you know, it started when I was a kid as books, and then sort of morphed into films, because that's kind of the coin of the realm of, you know, I, I grew up in the 80s. And that's sort of where pop culture sat and does still today. But I was very lucky, because I was thrown a little bit into the deep end of the pool. But I also think I was so young, I didn't I wasn't smart enough to be as scared as I probably should have been. And I sold a comedy and it was the summer that American Pie had come out. So I would go on these meetings and everybody wanted the next American Pie. So everything I was pitched was some version of a, you know, raucous sex comedy. Four dudes are going to get laid by hook or by crook. And I just didn't know how to write that. And so I was passing on this stuff which, you know, when you're a baby writer, you probably shouldn't pass on a bunch of stuff. But I was just, I wasn't smart enough. All I could sort of do is go, well, I don't know how to write that. So if I say yes, and it stinks, they're never going to want to work with me again. You know, so in a weird way, I think it was the right thing to do, but... Probably, you know, wasn't necessarily what the advice that I would have gotten if I had asked for some.
0: And again, I think it's it's a good thing you did it because oh yeah, shoehorn you into like that. You know, you're going to be the comedy guy for the next yeah. Day. And when you look at your resume, it's incredible. I don't think there there are a lot of writers that have a versatility in genre the way you do. Oh, thank you. And it's, I think it's so important because it's not about being a good writer. It's about being a good storyteller. You yeah. tell a good story sure, absolutely. regardless. So I'm, I'm just going to go off a tangent on a moment. Totally. But how did your understanding of genre, you know, between Zodiac and Truth and investigative journalism, which we're going to be talking about. But did you start getting interest in different genres uh, way back then and said, I, I got to try something completely different?
1: I was always kind of... It, it wasn't that conscious I, I at the time. I think literally it was just... I always... You know, I, we all watch different genre movies. Like, no one's like, I just watch comedies. Like, you've never met that person. Like, certain people prefer different genres and stuff like that. And I love horror movies, but and I'm, I have a lot of friends who just love horror movies, but they still watch dramas. They still watch comedies. So I always... Approached writing that way, like stories and when I was a kid and when I was a teenager and stuff like that, I wouldn't just write in kind of one genre. Like, it it never made sense to me that, like, John Grisham just writes about lawyers. Like, that just doesn't compute for me. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm sure there was someone who was saying, hey, man, you got a good thing going with the lawyer thing. Like, let's keep the legal... Like, you know, once... Once you get, you know, a little bit of uh, not fame, because we're screenwriters, so that doesn't exist. But like once people get to know you in the business, they want you to do that thing that you do really, really well. And I was always kind of like, I think, A, because my com the comedy I wrote came out when it did or 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 sold when it did. And the the only type of comedy that was interesting was something I literally felt I couldn't do. And then because I was interested in writing other stuff, I sort of was like. And I had this wonderful guy named Mikkel Bondison, who is my manager and was my manager then. We'd been together for all of it. We went to breakfast that year, and um, my agent had kind of dropped me, demoted me, had wanted me to be handled by his assistant, and I said, thank you, that's very nice, but I signed with you, so no thank you. So I, I had lost my agent at this point, and I sort of pitched this script idea to my manager, which ended up becoming this, this movie called Basic, but it's, a, it's the farthest thing from a comedy can be. It's sort of a dark thriller mystery set on a military base. And my manager kind of went, you know, like, you sold a comedy. You know, we should just be cognizant of that. And I said, listen, I'm nearly done with the script. Like, I'm writing it. So I'm just going to send it to you. And you read it. And if you don't think we should go out with it, we'll put it in a drawer and we'll go find a comedy job. And he was like, cool. And I sent him a script. And he read it. And he was like, I was totally wrong. Let's do this. And we just put it out. And we, there was a bidding war. But that from that moment on in my head, I went, oh, I don't have to let people sort of pigeonhole me. The great thing about being a writer is if you do the work, you can write yourself out of anything. I always loved the fact that Alan Parker directed Angel Heart and The Commitments. Like, I love that Richard Donner directed The Omen and Lethal Weapon. Like, you can have that career. You just kind of have to not be afraid to try different genres and different stuff.
0: Ron Howard's another director, Ron Howard does so well. And again,
1: Mr. Over, Mom and Apollo 13. I it mean, goes you back know, to right? just
0: good storytellers. Allow me to ask about your relationship with first drafts and specifically the concept of, of discovering a movie through the process of the rewrite. Okay. Uh, this is what you had to say. Quote, my first drafts are usually way too long to shoot. Roughly 170 pages for what, <laughs> should, what should be a two-hour movie. Yeah. The real work begins after the first draft close quote. So what is your process like in regards to choosing what ideas to take out after a first draft and what to build more on? I think
1: when I was younger, I used to get to the draft faster. And as I've gotten older, I spend more time outlining. And I just have found that. And I used to kind of poo-poo that when I was younger. Not that outlining was bad, but I would just, all I would need are really like the, the, um, the signposts. Like I would go, okay, Starts here. Act one's got to end here. Midpoint is here. Act two ends here. And then the movie's got to end here. And it was like, with those five, roughly, I would start writing. And what I found over the years is I was blowing past the dreaming part of it, like, which sounds very froofy, but like the part where you just kind of sit around and go, what could happen in this movie? Like, what would be the coolest thing ever? And you write that down, and it doesn't have to connect to anything. It doesn't have to, but maybe later when you come back, you realize it could connect to this and connect to that. So I tend to spend more time outlining or just dreaming or thinking of of what would be interesting scenes or interesting lines and stuff like that, and then gradually sort of it coalesces into some kind of form or structure. As a writer, your brain, or my brain at least, constantly is trying to, it's like a, you know, it's like a game of Jenga. Like you're constantly going, how can I fit that in? And how does that go over there? And and so then I always end up with a massively too long first draft. And and then I just, first I do a, a pass on my own. I don't give it to anybody. And just kind of sit there with a pen and and sort of go, nope, that, go, that can go, that can go, that can go. Let's pull this out. Let's pull this out. You know, I keep a cuts file open so that I'm never feeling like I'm deleting anything. Like... Sometimes I think the whole process of writing, by the way, is tricking yourself into not realizing you're writing. Like it's it's all a game with yourself where you're trying to fool yourself into not thinking you're currently writing something. So I'll just make notes over here or I'll just like type this little chunk over here and then eventually go, wait, these two things connect. I wrote this, you know, or oh, that's my insane uh, uh, brain. But then sort of going through the first draft and kind of going, what, what can just fall out of it? Like, what don't we need? And there's a trick a, a friend of mine did tell me. Take your first draft, have two scotches, read it with a red pen. You will be amazed what you cut out that you actually realize you can lose. I tried it and I was like, that's genius. You cut 20 pages. And it's stuff you might never have thought or or you would have to get farther down the road to realize you were going to cut. And then I give it to some friends, and usually they have some really good ideas about what to lose and what's not working. So I just think it's the first draft's the clay. Like, you gotta get the clay in order to start molding it. And I'm also a big believer in sometimes you have to write stuff to know you have to cut it. Like, when you're editing a film, you sometimes have to shoot the scene in order to know you don't need the scene. And it's weird, and it's messy, and it's art, and you're creating it, but you kind of have to go through, at least I have to go through that whole process in order to whittle it down. Whereas I have a friend... Dave Coggeshaw, who's an amazing writer, his scripts are 95 pages and it drives me up the wall. Like, and he just, he can't get over 110 pages if he tried. And it's, you know, but I'm constantly banging my head against page count.
0: In general, just this idea of of archiving ideas and, and playing with all the possibilities, I was so... Surprised? I, I heard you keep a notebook for specific projects. Oh yeah, no, I got there's like a stack of them. And like, and, there. and you you know you have some lines that don't connect to anything, yep. and you know and I drawing and you know stuff like that. But it's amazing that you have it all there. So whether through the rewrite or going back, uh, do you just what do you do with them? Do you save them? And, uh, I
1: save them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's and it sometimes it's fun because you can just literally crack it open and go, oh, that's in a movie now. Like you know what I mean? Like you go, oh, that's the first time. It's like I have um I did a movie called White House Down, and I have that literally written in notebooks, just pieces this and that and the other and I started doing it actually after John Hughes died there was an article in Vanity Fair that talked about his office was filled with all these old composition books with all this writing and I realized I would make notes on like yellow legal pads and then paper to get torn off but I didn't have a record of stuff like it's all work product right like you're a crazy writer and you have an idea in the middle of the night like it's all work product write it down and then I'll come back to stuff like a year later and go oh wait I already figured this scene out I was like, you're a human adult, technically. Like, you can be somewhat organized. So I, you know, every project, I get a composition book. I write the, the name on the front. And then just whenever I want to make a note, I'll make a note.
0: There was a writer-director who was, you know, I asked him this. I was like, do you, do you, you know, have notebooks? And he's like, oh, no, you know, the good ideas, they stay in here. And I was like, I could, I could never do that.
1: Sure. It. By the way, and by the way, like, I used to feel that way. And now I, I feel differently. And I also think it's really funny, too. I always find that writers, when they meet each other, always like, kind of like sniffing or like, so how do you do it? Like, because there's no right way and we're all sort of looking for tricks or shortcuts or, you know what I mean? So everybody's different. But for me, that kind of opened up this whole other sort of thing. And it was also like, you're a professional writer. You're allowed to have a bunch of notebooks around with John Doe, like, you you know, writings in them that may or may not make sense or may or may not come to anything at the end of the day. But I've pulled more stuff out of that in the last probably eight years, you know, that I've been doing it than than I would have. It's all that's. I'm like, oh, I would have lost all that stuff.
0: Allow me to ask about the first specific project. Uh, you knew this was coming. I am a massive Zodiac fan. Oh, cool. And I wanted to ask you first about your collaboration with Fincher. And it's amazing that he kept you on as the sole writer. Yeah. Because a lot of people would have been like, you know, thank you, James. We'll take it from mm-hmm. here. And I just wanted to ask you about his uncompromisable attitude and his comfort, the idea of challenging the material. And in your case, for Zodiac, from my understanding, it's getting to it and saying, okay, we're going to put this down. We're going to go 18 months and talk to people. Yeah. Everyone who was involved in we're going to look through documents. Could you talk about those 18 months and, and when, from when you began to when you ended and when did you realize, okay, now... It's it's good. It's ready.
1: I mean, it was look, David was incredible and one of the high points of my life was working with him and he's just he's very it's funny because his reputation is he's uncompromising and see but like he's actually one of the funniest people I know. He's got such a dry sense of humor, which you see in his films. Like you watch, you know, Fight Club and you're like, Oh, this is a comedy for you, isn't it? But he was great and he was to me, when he wanted to do the movie, he was already you know, Capital D David Capital F Fincher. Fight Club is one of my favorite movies of the decade. So I was definitely like, oh my God, we're gonna, we're really really gonna do this. And he was he was very I think the reason people think he's uncompromising is he just is very honest about what he's gonna do. And with Zodiac, he literally said, Listen, I really like this. I think it's great. I grew up around the Bay Area, so this speaks to me in a way. I'm not gonna do this. We can't use everyone's real name. And legal went, well, but the movie kind of accuses someone of murder. We can't use their real name. And he goes, okay, cool. I won't do the movie. And they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And that's the thing about David is like, in Hollywood, people say stuff and then they kind of back off. And David just doesn't. He's like, no, I told you. Like, this is what I need to do the movie. And and so getting into the research part of it, because I had really spoken to, I had spoken to Graysmith a ton while I was writing the draft, but the draft was very much based on the two books. And David said, listen, you know, if we're really going to do this, and really going to use people's names, like, we have to go out there and talk to everybody. And I was thrilled, you know, because again, I was at this point the guy who had written the rundown. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'd written a Dwayne Johnson movie, back when that was not necessarily the biggest, greatest thing in the world. They're like, oh, he wrote a movie for the Scorpion King last, and now he wants to talk to me about these murders. So I wasn't going to get in a lot of these doors on my own. But if David Fincher was with me, you better believe the San Francisco Police Department was going to sit down with us. So we spent that time, and we interviewed everybody. I mean, like I would hazard to say everybody connected to the case who was still alive, we spent time with. We spent time with Brian Hartnell and Mike Mugeot, who were the two surviving victims of the Zodiac. We spent time with Arthur Lee Allen's family who talked to us and didn't want us to, you know what I mean? They, they said you can talk to us and they had certain feelings that they didn't want shared with the outside world that to this day we won't. We talked to all of the surviving detectives who worked on the case from all of the different counties that, that the Zodiac killings took place in. I had made a decision before, and this is one of the things I think David really liked, was I had made a decision in the original script that we were never going to see... Anything with the Zodiac in it where there wasn't a, a victim or, or a bystander alive who could tell us what happened. So there were Zodiac murders that we don't show in the movie. There's actually the first murders he killed a, a boy and a girl in another lover's lane and neither of them survived so we, I didn't put it in the movie. And so it was kind of using that idea that everything had to be double sourced. We did it journalistically and I actually somewhere and I don't know where it is um, and that drives me crazy but I had to actually do an annotated script where every single fact was footnoted from interviews that we got it from and people we talked to. We also recorded everything, too. So we would sit down with a tape recorder and just sort of go through it with people. And it was an amazing experience.
0: Hello, this is
1: Melvin Valli. Who am I speaking with? This is the Zodiac speaking. Do you think you need medical care? Medical? Do you have health problems? I'm sick. I have headaches. Headaches. I have headaches too, but a chiropractor stopped them a week ago. I think I can help you.
0: <laughs> it's it's such a great film and I think it's interesting talking about approach. Uh, from my understanding, David cast a different person it, correct me if I'm wrong but it's a this different- is totally true
1: and by the way I'm taking credit for that it was my idea because uh, I stole it from Hitchcock there you, go, there you um, go I literally was like you know what you should do is X, Y, Z because Hitchcock in Psycho didn't use Anthony Perkins for all of the like he used different actors F- so amazing. that you could never clock the actual body size of, of that and so yeah so David put a different person in the Zodiac costume every time
0: that's incredible yeah. do you ever have the performer who's playing Arthur Lee Allen in any no. of those? No. Right.
1: No, he's just in the uh, he's just in that scene. In the
0: interrogation. Let me let he me was ask so great
1: him. by the way he was by the way, he was the brother on Drew Carey. Like it was like he was as far he was no he's Norm from from Fargo. Yeah. Like and it's yeah, like yeah. and he comes <laughs> in and parks that and you're like,
0: oh my God, I'm terrified of Norm. The scene where he sits down with Toski and, and the other guys yeah. and it's you know they're passing around the watch. It's just yeah. the informant notified us that you made certain statements eleven months prior to the first Zodiac murder. If they're true, they're quite incriminating. Do you recall having any such conversation? No. Have you ever read or heard anything about the Zodiac? When it was first in the paper, but I didn't follow it after those first reports. Why not? Too morbid. I told all this to the other officer. Which other officer? From Vallejo. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. You have a bunch of the Zodiac attacks in the movie. Was there one sequence specifically, whether for facts, creative reasons, that was the hardest you kept coming back to again and again, and you had to keep shaping of all the ones you show? I mean, I think
1: we spent so much time talking to the people who lived through them that we knew really we didn't want to get on the floor unless we had it. I think in terms of just building it, Lake Berryessa was probably the trickiest just because There were so many different... Brian Hart... Now, the victim remembered... He gave his police statement, and they said this in the police statement directly afterwards, but now he remembers it a little differently. Ken Narlo, who was the lead detective on it, remembers it a little differently. So there were moments where we kind of had to go, okay, what's the most... You know what I mean? Like, So I would say that one, and then I think we struggled for a long time with the cab driver shooting in San Francisco... I don't remember if it was David or, or me or whoever, but finally went, well, we don't need to show... Because the whole thing was like, okay, he gets in the cab, he he drives, you know, he drives through San Francisco, the cab stops, he shoots the cab driver. What did they talk about in the cab? Like, we don't know. And finally, it was like, we're just not going to show that. We're going to be outside the cab. And he did this crazy sort of CG shot of the cab going through San Francisco and the camera looks like it's locked on the cab. Yeah. Almost looks like a video game, but it's kind of great. And it was that was that our that was our solution because the only thing we know for certain is he was shot and there were kids who witnessed it from across the street. You know, that was sort of the level of, we, we never wanted to put anything out there that we didn't feel was true and that somebody else could dispute. You know, the trickiest thing about it is sort of structurally, it's like, then the murders stop. And I think, part and the movie, by the way, did not work financially. Like, It is one of those movies that's more like a text that you kind of come back to a little bit that is a different, you know, it it is not your typical three act structure. And that's one of the things I was so excited about when I wrote it because I was really excited to write a movie where the two main characters don't meet till the end of the second act.
0: And I was going to ask you about that. That was going to be my next question in regards to, you know, a structure. How interesting is it to have a movie that is front-loaded with murders? you know, once Zodiac stopped writing letters, then there was still in the air, there was still this element of, of a obsession. And, you know, the movie doesn't give a definitive answer because there is no definitive yeah. answer. And I was going to ask you about that. Another great quote, quote, I seem to be drawn to stories which at the core seem to be about unknowable things. In Zodiac, it was who the Zodiac killer was. And in truth, which you're going to be talking about it was the documents. To You speak to as many people as possible, both on and off the record, and then go off to write a screenplay as honestly as possible and through the eyes of your protagonist. So I just wanted to ask you about specifically the structure of the screenplay And always bringing things back to the point of view of, you know, Graysmith, which is played by Jake Gyllenhaal and and Tosky, played by Ruffalo. And and how do you find the in-between?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I was, you know, the Graysmith books were definitely the in for me. And so I always sort of saw it through his eyes. And I also, there is a hookiness to cartoonist goes after serial killer that you just kind of go... That is, that does, I'm curious, what is that? Like, how does that work? And over the kind of the course of, in the first draft, I think Graysmith and Toski met, I, I didn't have them meet sooner in real life. I didn't fudge that, but I got them together sooner. And about, I think about the halfway point. And David went, I cause I was worried a director and studios would go, oh no, 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 like they have to meet sooner. There's gotta be a buddy picture. This is, you know, cause that's the normal structure for one of these things. And I remember David being like, hey, we got to talk about Grace Smith and Toski," And I was like, oh no, you're, like, they're going to have to like get them together soon. And he's like, don't worry about how long it takes them to get together. Like, just tell the story. Like, we have to tell the story. And that's the other thing about Fincher, which is like, he challenges the script, but you're the writer. Like, that's your job. and And that applies to everybody on the crew, too. It's like, the reason he's so precise is because he expects you to do your damn job. And that was such a wonderfully freeing, like oh, I don't have to worry about getting them together. I can just kind of tell the story. Because also the trick of the movie a little bit is, where do you want to be as an audience member? Because Graysmith is a really kind of fun and interesting character. And he and Avery have this, Robert Downey Jr., have this sort of fun thing at the Chronicle. But the movie wants to be with the investigation. And the investigation is Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards. So going back and forth, it was kind of this sort of plate-spinning situation where it's sort of like you wanted enough Graysmith in the first half of the movie to know that he was going to really be something, you know, we were going to get to him. But he's really introduced in the movie and then kind of watches stuff happen for, you know, an hour and a half before he kind of kicks into gear. So I loved the idea that there was sort of a passing of the torch structure in the movie and that it would really be driven by the letters coming in. And then that's why the, you know, the opening credits is, is following that envelope through the San Francisco Chronicle. And and David had final cut up to two hours and forty five minutes, and I think the movie is two hours and forty four minutes. Without credit,
0: <laughs> I will ask you for a moment uh, about the amazing Spider Man. Just to remind people who are listening, you invested a lot of your time, from my understanding, five years on, on the Spider-Man movies in general. You know, you begin by writing a draft for what should have been Spider-Man 4 for Sam or Amy, and then you end up writing Amazing Spider-Man, but only the first draft of Amazing Spider-Man 2. Yeah. You're not around for production.
1: Like, this movie's going to be great, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you specifically about a part of you as a, a writer is, is the pitching process, sure. which we don't hear much about, you know, you go to Sony and you pitch your version of, we're going to tell the Gwen Stacy story. And I want to ask you what your relationship is with pitching and, and do you enjoy it as part of, of the studio process, you know? Yeah, I don't love it.
1: I mean, but that's also, cause I just, I just don't love it. Like it's, it's, some people are really great at pitching. I don't, I think I'm okay at it. Like I think, you know, I've gotten jobs pitching, so I can't be like, I I'm terrible. Spider-Man was just a weird whole thing because it was, I pitched to write Spider-Man 4 and my pitch was, look, you're going to end up, Toby's going to stop making these movies and Sam's going to stop making these movies at some point, so why not? And this was before Nolan had done Dark Knight Rises. I was like, you have the opportunity to end a franchise, which is super cool and no one has done. Like, So let's tell the last Spider-Man story. And that was sort of what got me involved in it. Not always. I'd grown up with Spider-Man. I loved Spider-Man. And then basically what happened is I wrote the script. They made deals with Sam. They made deals with Toby. They had hired me to write two, two movies, Spider-Man 4 and Spider-Man 5. They, once they made the deals, they said, you know, we're only going to make Spider-Man 4. They brought in another writer to rewrite it. It was a great writer, did a fantastic job. But they were like, look, we had contracted you for two. We know we're going to reboot it at some point. And um, would you be interested in doing that? And I I passed. I was like, no, I kind of, the reason I came in was this. And I had an idea. I, I literally like, I passed on it. I went to bed. I woke up in the morning. I said, wait, now I think I know how to do it. And I called him up and I said, I know I passed, but can I come in? And Amy Pascal, who ran the studio at the time, was lovely and had me in. But but in terms of pitching, like I always feel like it's it's like pretend what you're pitching is a, is a really great movie you saw and you're trying to convince your friend to see it. Tell a story about this cool movie you saw and spend a lot of time setting it up, a lot of time on the first act and and not much time on the second act, and then the third act is you just explain what, you know, you're like, and then there's a big fight, and, like, obviously this person wins, and that's why, and the final scene is X, Y, Z. You don't want to pitch the movie in proportion to how you would write the movie, time-wise. I also think when you pitch, you, you, you shouldn't be pitching to prove to somebody you know how to write a movie. Like, you shouldn't be like, well, I have to show them I know how this sequence connects to this sequence. It's like, they get it. And the other thing I, I always heard, which is sort of great, is, like, Think of of a pitch like you're telling someone a joke. Like anyone can tell a joke, right? There's a a setup, there's a punchline. Your pitch is the same way. It's, you know, you're telling this really cool story and you want to do it in as little time as possible. Like my pitches are 10 to 15 minutes tops. Like I think if you go over 20 minutes, someone is going to want. I sat in 45 minute pitches and I've wanted to kill myself. But last, I would kill others first and then finish with myself. (laughs) Like, And it just, it doesn't help you. You pitch, you pitch a nice tight movie, and then everyone will have questions. Because whenever you pitch to somebody, like, even if not just to justify your job, you know, you have to ask a question if you're a producer or an executive. And in those questions, you'll have really good answers, and they'll feel like they contributed. So that's sort of my... My feeling of pitching. But do I love doing it? No. And it's different for every movie, you know, what what it requires, I think.
0: Let's talk about truth. Which, by the way, as I was telling you, I can... I can't recommend it enough. Oh, it's thank like you so much. I came in and it's not just about enjoying a great story, but learning more. Mm-hmm. And if you were discussing the idea of, of being attracted to films that allow you to peek behind the curtain, whether it's certain professions, you know. And in this case, how a story is put together. Mm-hmm. You're obviously being open about the fact that you're attracted to investigative journalism. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that because I think, I don't know if it's fair to call it a genre. It's not a specific genre, but I think it's about... Giving out breadcrumbs and clues and involving the audience. So why do you think, you know, investigative journalism and these kind of stories like Zodiac and like Truth work on such a subconscious level and invest the audience and bring them right in? I think everyone likes a mystery,
1: like a little bit, and and wants to figure out figure out what the truth is for certain things. And with that movie, I was I read I read this um, wonderful book by Mary Mapes, and I always, I almost, I almost say almost was a journalist. But if I didn't do this, I would have tried to go into journalism. And so I always loved that world. And just in terms of what you were talking about, uh, peeking behind the curtain, like I always found like that's one of the coolest things about movies. Like I'm never gonna be on a nuclear submarine, but like I will watch the hell out of Crimson Tide, like and and be like, oh, that's how they talk. That's how they like. That's part of the fun of movies is getting to sort of walk in other people's shoes. And I I, I feel like you can kind of tell when writers and directors are just making that shit up and when they've actually done the work. And so with, you know, journalism films, which is absolutely this sort of sub-genre of, of pictures like that, it's like, I mean, we all go back to All the President's Men and how amazing that movie was because that was a movie where you knew the ending. Like, you know how this works out, and yet it's built in such a great way that you still care about the mystery of it. And so that was, we talked about that a lot with Zodiac and with Truth because they were both true life stories where all you need is is five seconds on Google to tell you how the story is going to end. So how do you make something compelling and interesting and when it's not a fictional thing that, you know, you can surprise people with X or Y or Z. So I just, I think there's just something about it. And, And with that, I really just wanted to, again, sort of, tell this story as honestly as I could. And I did the same thing on Truth that I did with Zodiac, because I talked to as many people involved as I could and tried to be sort of truthful about what happened to them. And then the other thing I I worked really hard to do is to not make it a homework movie. I tried to make it as entertaining as as it could be and funny as it could be, and because you want to actually go on an emotional and and fun ride. And so that's that's how I tried to build the picture. Let's
0: talk about the new season. What are you thinking? Uh I might have something for the election There's this Houston businessman named Bill White who claims that he has documents that show the bin Laden family were investors in arbusto
1: Arbusto Bush's oil company.
0: you know it could just be lots of sound and fury, but Vanity Fair is into it too. you know that whole time period for Bush is funky. Run it down, but if we go with this, we got to go early we we can't October surprise him all right. If you're into this, I'd like to bring in some other people to help. And you mentioned all the president's men, yeah. which is, you know, I don't know how conscious or subconscious it was as a, as a decision, but it didn't hit me until the end of the movie. But you have Redford. Yeah. In it. How how did the cast come about? Because I wanted to ask you about it
1: that. It was, I mean, I got, first of all, I got incredibly lucky because the cast is, I got to make the movie I wanted to make and people got to see it. And that's, I mean, I, I, that's living the dream. But it was Kate Blanchett, uh, Robert Redford, Topher Grace, Dennis Quaid, Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss was like fifth on the call sheet. Like, oh my God. So what ended up happening was I had. Worked with Redford on a movie that didn't get made that I had written called Against All Enemies, which was based on Richard Clark's book about counterterrorism. It was a true another true life story, and he was going to direct it. So I knew him a little bit, like not, you know, you know, we weren't going skiing together or anything like that, but like I could call him up and and he would know who I was. And so when I wrote truth, I always in my head went he'd be great for Dan Rather. And I, because I, I, I know he looks nothing like Rather, but the thing about Dan, and I had spent time with Dan to write the script, is he's the type of person, when he walks into a room, the gravity changes. Everything tilts towards him. Like he has this quality for people of my generation and a little younger who saw him when he was an anchor on the news, that he was the voice of God a little bit. He, was, he came into your home every night. And people grown up with that. And so he was very familiar to them. And Redford's the same way. Redford is Robert Redford. We all know what he sounds like. We all know what he looks like. And they have that same quality, even though they look nothing alike. And so people would sort of say, what about this guy for Dan? What about this guy for Dan, who would look like him? I said, no, it's Redford. It's got to be Redford. Mm-hmm. But I knew if I went to him first, his question would be, you know, who's the, I mean, it's a clearly a supporting role in the script. Who's, who's Mary? Who's the woman? And so I was like, I have to get the actress first. We talked about a number of different people and Kate was always someone who was in the conversation. And when I sent her the script, she had just won her second Academy Award, like the night before. And I was like, guys, there's no way that Kate Blanchett is going to follow up her second Academy Award by working with a first time director. But they sent it to her and she read it and she liked it. And We got on the phone and we had about a 40 minute conversation and I was sweating bullets the whole time. And she said, you know, she said, can you do it in Australia? She said, I promised my family I wasn't going to work this fall. But if you shoot it here, can you do it here? And I was like, absolutely, of course. Like, what a great idea. Um, and we got off the phone and, and her agent called and said she, she was in. And then I said, that's great. And I turned to my other producer. I said, fun fact, we are going to have to shoot in Australia. But once Kate was on board... I went to Bob and it was, we sent, I wrote him a, a nice note and and explained, I wrote this for you. And you know, the way it works too is like you send that and then it goes through the agent and then the agent will call back and tell you how it went. Like you don't really have a conversation at this point with the actor. And I was in my house like four days later and, and I got a blocked call and I answered it and I heard, "Hey Jamie, it's Bob Redford." And it was like it was him, it wasn't his assistant? It wasn't it? It was him. And he's like, "So I read the script. That's you know, I the, I think uh, yeah, uh, I think we we should do that. I'd like to do that." Um, and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> and so once I had Kate and Bob, it was like you could get pretty much anyone you wanted they're the heavyweight champions like people want to throw with them people want to be in scenes with them so you know we had Stacy Keach come in for three days who was I mean was just amazing to have somebody like that in it and I remember there was one moment there was one point where John Papsidera who was our casting director said who are you thinking of for Lucy and I said well somebody I think somebody like Elizabeth Moss would be amazing he goes well what about Elizabeth Moss and I was like yeah yeah no I know but like we're not gonna get Elizabeth Moss. He goes, no, 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 she wants to do it. Like she's read it. She'd like to play the part. And I was like, this is crazy. It was so good for me because they were such good actors. I couldn't be scared. Like I was like, because one of the things when you direct your first movie, you just don't, it's, it's a really crazy situation because it's almost like everyone else on the set has done their job more than you. The caterer has more hours doing their job than you do. And you're in charge. It's it's like if somebody in midair in a 747 was like, we'd like you to land the plane. We're going to put you in charge of all of us. And so I've seen people react one of two ways. Either they kind of cocoon and go, I am I have to be, I'm the smartest person here. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. Or they just sort of open up and go, hey, guys, like, it takes a village help me out here a little bit. And I think because I had such a great, crazy cast, because it was so nuts that I was directing them, I just sort of embraced that and was like, "Kate, how do you like to work? Like, hi, Bob, how do you like to work?" And also, they were all so excited to work with them with each other. Like it was like like I remember Kate came to me the first day Bob started and she was like, "I'm I can't believe how nervous I am. Like, this is crazy. Like, like can you believe this?" And I'm like, I'm "Like, lady, I can I, I can't believe I'm directing you." Like, what <laughs> like now you know who I felt 2 weeks ago when we started, like, you know? But it was just fantastic. It was, it was such a great experience. And there is nothing better than working with great actors. And this is one of the, the differences between being a writer and being a director is I feel like as a writer, you work so hard to get everything perfect and crafted. And then as a director on set, I think you need to be ready to throw that out and capture whatever sort of feeling and magic is going on there.
0: And it turned out beautifully. Oh, thank you. You know That was the one thing I was going to ask <laughs> oh, you about uh, in regards to working as a producer and a writer before and collaborating w- with all these great directors. And I know, I'm sure you asked for a lot of advice going into it and, oh, yeah. and everything. I mean, I, I was curious to ask you as a first-time director, what was your biggest fear going into the movie?
1: My biggest fear was the actors, Was oh, was okay. because I had never... I mean outside of short films and in like college with my friends and like you know high school plays and stuff like that, I never really directed actors. you know I was nervous about a bunch of other stuff too I was nervous about camera just because I was not um you know, I wasn't a, a DP. I never sort of had done that. And and so I, when I was sort of interviewing DPs, I would go, look, I don't know lenses. Like, I know what I want the movie to feel like and, and look like. I can give you references and stuff like that. We can talk about, and I think we should. But I don't know lenses. I'm not going to be able to be like, throw throw a 40 on that. And you know what I mean? Like, And Mandy Walker, who shot the movie, was incredible. She's a genius, though, too. We spent, you know, days and days and days going through. And and she went, like, I'll teach you. We'll take a look. And we did camera tests. And we did... But she's worked with a lot of first-time directors done an amazing job. She did uh, Billy Ray's first movie, Shattered Glass, which is amazing. If if you want to talk about a great journalism film that's very different than Truth, that's a a great one to check out. But really was sort of working with the actors, because I just didn't know... If I'd like it, I didn't know if I'd be able to communicate correctly with them. And I read a bunch of different books. I read Directing Actors, which is everybody should sort of read if you're going to be a director. And then there are two books. One is called I'll Be In My Trailer. And I can't remember the title of the second one. They're both written by John Badham, was a wonderful 80s and 90s director. Directed Stakeout. He directed War Games. And he wrote, I don't think this was a financially successful idea for him, but it was great for me. Is He wrote... Two books, basically how to direct a feature film with movie stars. And I'm like, the audience for this book is tiny. (laughs) But like, for me, it was great because it was here are the pitfalls. Here's what you have to watch out for. Here's how you have to. And I just didn't know would I be able to kind of tweak the performances correctly. What's amazing was that turned out to be my favorite part of the job was just, was, was doing that and dealing with that and watching how you could give a note and have it sort of ripple. With great actors, it'll ripple through the scene. I loved that. And it was really fantastic. But then in terms of preparing, I talked to basically every director I knew and took them to lunch and sat down and said, I'm going to buy you lunch and you're going to spend the next two hours telling me everything I need to do to direct a feature film. And also, what's the thing you wish you'd known when you started? And I did it with a completely bunch of people. Took one of my notebooks, wrote it all down. And so... By day one, my whole thing was like, if I suck at this, I want it to be because I suck at it, not because I wasn't prepared. So I prepared as much as humanly possible.
0: Allow me to wrap things up by sure. asking you about an industry which has changed so much in the last 20 years. And for whoever wants to be an aspiring filmmaker or is in film school right now, I just there's a distance there's a bubble which seems unsurmountable and I wanted to ask from your experience in what ways do you feel like Hollywood is different from the way you imagined it to be through the eyes of the 19 year old self how have these last 20 years been for you
1: I mean I think it's it's the change is enormous just in terms of what the landscape is what the when I started out, you know, first of all, the idea that, that writers would move between television and film, much less actors. I mean, that Dwayne Johnson would be on an HBO series and also the biggest movie star in the world at the same time was crazy. So I think the landscape has shifted in a huge way just in terms of how we digest films, how we get them, you know what I mean? How we take in entertainment now. The iPhone changed everything, the, you know what I mean? Now streaming's changing everything. Like all of that is has changed. I think the thing that hasn't changed is the need for content as it's called now and the need for people to tell stories. And I think the good news, I would say, and I don't want to be one of those guys who's like in my day it was harder because it wasn't. It was it was different is the fact that you can now just go make a movie with your phone. And if you make something of quality and you make something of value, that's an enormous calling card. You could not just kind of really go out and make a feature. The closest you could come with something like Clerks, like which again still cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars in in nineteen nineties money. So that's really exciting. And I think you know the ability to get like with YouTube and other sort of stuff like that to get your work in front of eyeballs without having to pay the same kind of gatekeepers or, you know, that I think is really, really exciting. And so for anyone who's aspiring, I think it's just go out, pick up a camera, you know, for writers, I mean, again, it's the greatest job in the world because literally it's the only job in film you don't need money to do. No one can stop you from writing a script. So I think that that has remained the same, even though the landscape has changed drastically. And I don't think the change is done either. Like, I don't think we know where this ends up in terms of... In five years, Netflix could be like HBO. Like, they're not going to be on top necessarily forever. You know, so Apple is about to step into the television space. And eventually, I think, we'll step into the feature space. That's an enormous fountain of money waiting to kind of generate content. And also how we perceive stories. Like, do we prefer eight hours that you can binge over two hours that you, you know movies are taking on different forms i think the only thing that's you know for older guys like me it's it's tougher to get a movie in a theater but i think for younger people it's not as that doesn't matter as much you know and which is totally okay you know it's just it's we consume media in a different way now than we did 20 years ago and i think that has rippled up into the industry itself but listen it's a beg borrow and steal like you know you can again you can get in you definitely can get in it's just about Staying in, I think. So, yeah. I think it's a super exciting time for the industry. I'm an optimist, and I think, like, there's so much need for great work now. And so many buyers, so many outlets, so many networks, so many digital platforms, so much OTT stuff. Like, it's they need stuff. They need content. They need great storytellers.
0: So go right. Go right. James, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, my
1: pleasure. Thank you you so much. All right.
0: there you have it, folks. I would like to thank James for welcoming us into his home to record this conversation. As always, if you like the podcast, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share this show with fellow filmmakers, as it allows us to bring you, week after week, great conversations. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode with editor Eddie Hamilton, whose credits include X-Men First Class, Kingsman and Kingsman the Golden Circle, and the last two Mission Impossible films. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.